Hey guys, and welcome to Hunting Land, presented by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. If you like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is the podcast for you. I'm your host, Joe Bayer, here with my co-host, Clint Flowers. And Clint, we got an interesting show today. I want you to share your story you were just telling me before we started recording about, uh, about your nephew hunting this weekend. Well, he, uh, he's nine. He's trying to get his first buck and, you know, I put him, told him where to go, where we had a lot of activity from bucks and, uh, we're starting the rut. So the, the bucks are walking up checking these fields for does. And if there's not any in there, they're just kind of easing on. And they witnessed that yesterday. I, you know, I warned him, you got to be ready. And he wasn't, and he missed an opportunity at the biggest buck they've seen so far, just because he didn't hang around very long. And I was telling my wife that, and she said, well, why don't they just make like a, a doe decoy the way I use duck decoys and just put that out in the field for them to, to lure them on out. And I said, well, they actually do. We just don't see much of that around here. Yeah. You know, that was the reason for today's show is why is that Clint? I mean, I've never hunted over a decoy. Maybe you have, I just never have used one. It's not because I don't think they work or I don't have a reason really. I just Never have. So today we're going to be talking about how to hunt with a decoy, specifically talking about deer. Uh, that's going to be an interesting segment because I think that there's got to be some do's and don'ts when it comes to setting these things up, positioning them the right way. We're going to get into all that a little bit later in the show. But before we get there, let's hear from this week's show sponsor. And this week's show is brought to you by SunSouth. This is the season to get more done with quality John Deere equipment. And during the trade-in and trade-up sales event at SunSouth, you can own quality John Deere equipment for less with 0% financing on select new John Deere tractors and mowers, plus additional trade-in bonus cash for qualifying equipment. The trade-in and trade-up sales event at SunSouth. Visit SunSouth or shop sunsouth.com today. SunSouth, for those that do. Offers expire February 28th, 2021. Some restrictions apply. See your dealer for details. All right, before we jump into decoying these big southern whitetails that we're all chasing after right now, let's go check in with Jason Burbage, president of National Land Realty, and talk a little bit about land values around the country. Jason, welcome back to the show, man. I, I uh, you know, normally... We use this segment to talk about what land values are doing, uh, looking at some of the data, looking at some of the trends. We're, we're still compiling a lot of that data from 2020. We want to get some better, some better data, and we're going to be looking at that next month. So let's use this week to talk a little bit about what's going to be happening. Uh, you know, maybe do some crystal ball projections, but more importantly, let's, let's look back at, at what's happened in the past with land values when we've had changes in administrations whether that, you know, we're, we're seeing a change in the presidential administration, we're seeing a change in the control of the Senate. And, you know, who knows what's going to happen? We don't know. Are we going to see a, an economic downturn or maybe we're going to be great? But we can look at what's happened in the past and we can also look at maybe some of the differences in some of those historic trends. So I know you and Clint both can very well remember uh, 2008, 2009 and, and the years uh, immediately after that. If we were to experience an, an economic downturn in 2021 or 2022, eventually it's going to happen. It always does. What happens to land values in those periods? What, what, did, what did y'all see happen in 2008, 2009 on into 2011? Hey, well, Joe, I appreciate you having me back all to be able to talk about this. Um, it's a really, really interesting time period that we're in right now. Just in, in you mentioning before about us still compiling our data, COVID has actually impacted our ability to get that because of the counties, which is where the data always originates from, 
uh, ability to be able to get it processed and out because around the country, various counties have been closed during periods of time and that sort of thing. So we've seen we've seen a change in the timelines than what we're usually used to. So we have to keep reminding ourselves about that. So the interesting thing about all of this is that historically, the reason why land has always been a good investment is because historically, it's always trended up. Long-term investment standpoint, it's always been a good, safe place to put money. And then it also has the ancillary benefits for those who want to take advantage of that, of the opportunity to be able to use it. So back in 2000, leading up to 2008, 2009, what we were seeing was a lot of excitement about being able to put money into something and get a quick return out of it. We saw it in the residential market. We also also saw that uh, trickle into the land market, predominantly with uh, people buying property in hopes that it could be flipped for a development track or people buying uh, lots within developments, hoping that they could put some money into that and flip those out to an end user. So you had the the investors, uh, or in many cases, wannabe investors who didn't have true investor discipline, uh, buying property with the hopes that an end user would come along to pick it up. And so many people got in trouble because they overextended themselves they were buying property and borrowing money. They, they were buying property that they really couldn't afford to buy without having the uh, loan instruments available to them at that time. You know, it ended up with with what we saw, and that was a period of of time where we went from a lot of people in the market to not as many people in the market. But it didn't mean that that things stopped. Things changed, but there was still plenty of opportunity out there. And there's there are people that Clint and I represented both on the sales side and on the buy side who were able to take advantage of the opportunities that presented themselves during that time. So now with what we've been experiencing and a change in uh, leadership in the White House, what does that mean coming down the road? Well, in short, we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen really, but historically, um, there's never been an event that has dictated that the end of the world is happening when it comes to the land business. And overall, what I've learned over the years and what I've observed over the years is that the people who focus on what they can control are the ones who, who come out ahead. And what I mean by that is you have your investors, your disciplined investors who know specifically what they want and what they're looking for. And they have trusted advisors, uh, whether it be real estate professionals, first and foremost, but then also advisors who are advising them on what the timberland market's doing, what the housing markets are doing that, that help with timberland, um, timber valuations, ag commodity pricing, whatever it may be, that they're factoring all that into their decision making. But then on the end user side, too, there are plenty of people who bought property in 2008, 2009 all the way through when things kind of turned back around in, in uh, Southeast, which was uh, what we typically saw was fourth quarter of 2011. But you saw people who bought property that bought it because they were planning on using it. They wanted an investment component to it. So they bought a track with timber on it, or they bought a track that, that had ag that they could lease if they weren't going to farm it themselves. But they were also buying it for the enjoyment of it. You know the family benefit. What you know all the all the all the aspects that come out of that. So it wasn't as big of a deal if they bought a track in 2008 that hadn't truly corrected itself 
and maybe they paid three thousand dollars an acre for it and a couple of years later it was worth twenty seven hundred dollars an acre well if you look at that track right now it's probably worth thirty two hundred dollars an acre so in general it's one of those things where if you are trusting in knowledgeable people who are experts you're typically going to be okay if you are listening to people who are playing up the most recent exciting thing that's going on right now i'd have your guard up and then go from there yeah you talk about playing up some of those more exciting things and you see that a lot and new crops being farmed and new opportunities out there i mean there's all kind of things that you can do with land to quote unquote make money but one of the things that has been being done for as long as anybody's been tracking it and is still being done is timberland. That asset class really, it did very well in the downturn. I mean, Clint, did, did you see that demand for timberland increased, decreased, stayed, stayed level back in our last economic downturn? It increased. I mean, the stability of it uh, has always been one of its primary strengths. And timberland really shines during recessions and depressions for that reason. So, you know, it's one reason that we always advise diversifying into it, even when things are going really great in the stock market, stuff like that, because it's only a matter of time till you are going to have a downturn. And, you know, it's nice to have that hedge. So it, it definitely increased. When we think about, Jason, you're talking about that recreational component. The one, the, I mean, number one, we're still in a great economic period. I mean, don't think that this is doom and gloom and that we're saying that it's going to be going to be bad. But every there's always a market correction. So we just we know it's going to happen at some point. The thing that is different, much, much different now is, is COVID. And I mean, just from your feel of the market in your area, how do you feel that COVID has it's a hard way to put this into words, but it, like in my market, I'm just seeing so many new buyers coming in to the land market and their first thought is not investment. It's that secondary. Their first thought's not recreation even. That's secondary. Their first thought is I need a place away from the city, away from development that I can go to get my family out on. I mean, we're bringing an offer on a on a place today down in Perry, Florida that is you know, we're looking at they're buying this piece so that they can put livestock and plant their own garden. It's just purely a sustainability, self-sustainability demand. Are you seeing the same thing in, in South Carolina and in, in your part of the world, Jason? Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm in South Carolina. We're seeing that here. We're seeing it in every state that we do business in around the country. It's that same prevalent mindset of it's good to have some fresh air and a little bit of space around you to be able to, even if you're, even if just getting away to go recharge. I think that COVID has, has really kind of highlighted two things. It, so this is the interesting thing about COVID. It's highlighted the necessity for uh, human interaction. You know, the people who have unfortunately had to really separate themselves, you know, quarantine themselves from others for, for health reasons. And the impact that's had on their whole mindset is, is one thing, but uh, so it's highlighted the importance of being around other people, but it's also highlighted the importance of having space around you. So what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing, what I've personally been experiencing is ranging from people wanting to get, a, a, you know, five acres in the mountains to be able to just go away to for the weekend, you know, disconnect, get away from your phone constantly going off and get away from the news 
seems like, you know, if you turn the TV on, there, you're, there's going to be something to get you worked up. And um, people are just craving that ability to be able to disconnect and recharge. And then also uh, being able to spend some time with people, you know, close to you, whether it's family or friends, you know, being able to have a small gathering to be able to share in what you know, God has given us and, and the, the beauty of the great outdoors. So I think that this is going to continue on. I mean, even once we get COVID, get some control around around that, I think that, that we're still going to continue to see more and more people gravitate to having some space around them. I think that's a great thing. I do too. I, I think it's re- this is really wet people's whistle for being outside. And like you said, having that space. I mean, it, my three-year-old, he just turned three and we had a birthday party for him. And uh, we, we actually did a joint birthday party with another uh, couple that had a, a similar you know, a two-year-old and, you know, normally it would have happened at some type of uh, event space, you know, and we'd all gotten together and we'd all been packed in somewhere and we decided, you know what we're going to do, we're going to go out to our our hunting land, we're going to set up our camper, we're going to do hot dogs, hamburgers, and I mean, the kids spent the entire day just running, you know, I mean, just Mm -hmm. running and climbing hills and getting dirty and the parents, everybody was there. Nobody had cell phone signal, you know, so we were all just sitting around, guess what? Talking. And, and a lot of the folks that we had invited, number one, we were able to do this and be distanced and all that. But a lot of the folks that we had invited weren't outdoorsy type people, you know, I mean, they didn't hunt, they didn't fish. I mean, most of the things that they did were, you know, around the cities and they were just kind of flabbergasted that their kids could just run and nobody was worried about them getting abducted or hit by a car or, you know, anything like that. And I, I think you're exactly right. I think that this is just going to be one of those watershed moments for a lot of people where they realize I've been missing out on this and I don't want to anymore. Like I want to make this a part of my life. I'm, I'm excited about it, not just for the land business, but for the hunting industry, the fishing industry. I'm really hoping that this is one of those things that gets people back to a lot of the heritages that we've all grown up with. When we talk about moving forward, like you said, we don't know what's going to happen. Nobody really does. But what do you see as the opportunities for 2021? If, if somebody's really wanting to know what a piece of land is worth, they're either interested in buying it or they're interested in selling it. So for buyers, what are their opportunities go right now, do you think? And what, what type of things would you advise them to do when they're in their search? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because when, when someone comes to me and says, hey, I'm thinking about buying some land, the first question that, that, I, that I would always ask people is, have you ever bought any land before? Do you own land now? You know, if I didn't know them. Because what I want to find out is, do they really know what they want? And in many cases, a first-time land buyer has an idea, but they don't really know what that means. They don't really know... Uh, exactly what they want because they're still trying to figure it out. They, they, you know, they maybe they've gone and visited, been invited to a, a circumstance like what you just described, um, getting out for the day, having the kids run around, and all that. And they're like, I want something like that. It all starts with understanding what your needs are. So you, as the buyer, you, you need to have a real clear, clear picture of what that is. But also understand that sometimes it's hard to figure out figure that out exactly. And so that's when. This is the recurring theme that we always say. That's where it comes back to having a an expert be able to advise you on this is so important because you need to be able to, when you engage a land professional, first, it, it's easy to go online and look. 
You can go to nationalland.com, any other website that's out there and get plenty of information about what's available. That's easy enough to do. Um, but there's so much land for sale. Even though we're in this great seller's market right now, there's still a lot of property for sale. It can be overwhelming going, well, what exactly do I need and what do I want? And this isn't like you jump in the car and go drive around a few neighborhoods around your house. I mean, you're going a good bit of ways that you really have to put some thought into how you're going to spend your time. So you need to be working with somebody. The good indicator of if you're working with somebody who knows what they're doing is the types of questions that they're asking you to start off with. If you're talking to somebody and they're going, oh, yeah, I can get you that, I can get you that, I can get you that, then that's a red flag for me. And I'll let Clint speak to this some more. But the true professionals are, is, are they're asking you questions, trying to figure out what you want. And then they're educating you based on the responses that you're getting. So you can get this thing whittled down to what makes sense for you. Yeah, you're trying to identify the, you know, what's an apple and what's an orange. Because if you just hop on the internet, you know, the, the, the common theme is acres and, and general location. But other than that, you know, it can be really tough to identify, you know, what's what. So it's, it's always important to have clear goals. You know, those questions that, you know, we always try to ask is trying to define that box that somebody's trying to, that they really want to operate within, whether that be price or distance or, you know, attributes of the land, you know, what components of value they're looking for, you know, where they place their value, not just from a monetary sense, from an investment return, but also in the value and utility to them. Just really to hone in or create that bullseye for them, you know, even if they don't know quite what that is, try to help them define that. And then once that's there, then, then you can really, uh, make the most of somebody's time and investment there and, and not waste it. Otherwise, you're just spending a lot of a lot of miles and time riding around looking at stuff just to try to hope that whoever you're working with can eventually land on that. Whereas if you're working with somebody that knows what they're doing to start with, then they'll ask those questions and the results will be precise instead of just accurate. Seems like to me too, it's really hard for a buyer and it's also hard for a professional to make those kind of decisions in a vacuum where it's much better if I if you tell me the basics of what you want and we go look at something, then then I learn a lot more about what you like and what you don't like when we've got our boots on the ground because it's it's just really hard to get a feel for what you want just by talking about it. Because like you said, Jason, how do you know until you've been there? How do you know how far you want to be away from your house until you've made that drive a few weekends? All, all those things play into it. And, and it's just, it's it's back to Make sure you're talking to somebody who's really advising you and not just being a yes person. Uh, yeah, we can go look at that. Yeah, let's go look at it. It needs to be, yeah, we can go look at it if you want, but that's not what you said you wanted. Uh, here's why, you know, or here's the location. Here's why it's wrong. Somebody who's willing to tell you no, I think is something that I'm always looking for too. It's, I want you to help me see around a corner. Uh, that's why I came to you in the first place. What about landowners? Now, I don't know about you guys, but the landowners I'm talking to, for the most part, I would say that there's a general just sense of concern about the uncertainty in the future. What are the opportunities for them right now? Yeah. So just real quick on the buyer side, the simplest way to look at it is you don't want to be working with an order taker. So if you're a buyer, you don't want your land professional, your agent to be an order taker. And if you feel like you're at a fast food restaurant and your discussions with them, then rethink who you're working with. Right. Coming as regarding landowners, it's absolutely legitimate to be having concerns about what's the future going to look like? Should I be doing something now? Should I be waiting? What does that mean? And the, the best advice 
that I was that had ever been given. What I always give to others is you have to really ask yourself, what is the outcome that you're looking for? And how does that factor in? Because the mistakes that I see people make is they go, well, the, the best outcome for me is that I get X number of dollars for this property. And that's the only way I'm going to sell it. But you have to, you have to be asking yourself a lot of different questions from the standpoint of what are your plans moving forward? Why is it that you need to get a certain amount of money for something? What happens if I wait? You know, if you're not getting that number right now, uh, some people are hesitant to sell because they don't know what they're going to do next with that. And that's a legitimate uh, concern, as, concern as well. But overall, what I say to people right now is that we're in, in a great market. It's been the best market we've seen for, for quite some time. So if you've ever considered selling, it's certainly now's the best time to do it. I mean, and that's, we've been saying that for a while, but it hasn't changed yet. So that's something that you definitely want to take into consideration. If you're concerned about what's coming down the road, it kind of goes back to, you know, nobody can predict what the future holds. What we know is what we know, what we control, what we can control is what we can control. So I've seen so many deals, opportunities, and, and I've got, Clint, you probably had the same going back 2006, 2007, leading up to 2008. There are so many times landowners that I met with that were kicking themselves for not selling when they had the opportunity to because they turned down deals thinking that a better one was coming down the road and the economy changed, things shifted and buyers went away and those deals were gone. So my advice to you is if you've got your property on the market, you're thinking about selling it. Yes, there is a chance. There's always a chance there could be a better deal down the road. But you know, if you've got something sitting in front of you that checks the boxes, and you're being truly honest with yourself, you need to take real hard look at, at pulling the trigger now versus hoping that something better is going to come along. I know that that sounds salesy. You know, I mean, we, we, sell, we sell land. And so we're telling you, you need to sell your land. But I mean, just think about it from this way. We've got historically low interest rates. That's going to drive demand. We've got historically low capital gains rates. We've got COVID demand we've never had before. Everything's lining up or we've just got this pool of buyers. It's, it's basically about as, seems to be about as big as a pool of buyers as you could get right now. And that's when your values are going to be highest. You know, if we're getting back to the whole point of the segment, which is what's my land worth? At this point in time, I can't see any reason why land values would just skyrocket moving forward. I don't see, also don't see any reason why they're going to drop down drastically, but everything we've talked about today is pointing to just strong buyer market and a, that's a great time to sell. Anything you want to add to that, Jason? Yeah. I, and I'll just say this too, because you, you could be a buyer listening to this and going, well, how does that help me? You know, if you're telling the seller that this is the greatest time ever and this is when you need to be selling, that doesn't necessarily bode well for me, does it? And again, it, it goes back to what are your requirements for buying a piece of property? Why are you buying a piece of property? If your sole purpose is, is investment and you've got a, if you've got requirements that you've built over the years for investing in land, well then yeah, you need to stick to those. But if you're buying property, if your motivation is a combination of things, investment, but also like we talked about before, enjoyment, recreation, hunting, whatever it may be, there are properties that are on the market now that wouldn't be on the market normally, that you wouldn't have an opportunity to even buy. 
So if it, the concern then, of course, is, well, I don't want to overpay. I don't want to buy something that, you know, what if I got to sell it in two years and it's not worth what I paid for it? Clint alluded to when we were talking earlier, Clint talked about when they bought the house that they're in. And I don't want to share his story, but I've got a similar story in that. I've been in my house now for 11 years. And when we bought our house, we bought it in 2012. And when we bought our house, uh, it didn't appraise. It came in like, I don't know, 10 grand under the asking price. And me being the guy who likes negotiating and everything else, you know, I'm ready to go to battle to get this deal where I think it needs to be. Uh, and my wife told me, she said, I highly recommend that you don't screw this up. I don't want you going in there and trying to do that because I want this house. Because we were buying this house, we weren't planning on going anywhere anytime soon. And ultimately, she was right. I mean, I, I was fine with the price that we came to contract-wise. Um, we had the ability to make the difference up with the appraisal, so that wasn't a big deal. And we've been in the house for 11 years, and guess what? You know, it's an afterthought that, it, you know, we had to kick a little bit more cash into the deal to make it happen compared to where it, it is now. And so my point is this, is that if you find a piece of property that checks those boxes for you, that meets those requirements that you have with land, you shouldn't be buying something that has a, uh, a use, an end user use to it where you're going to be using it yourself and be concerned about you know, flipping it in a year or two. If your plan is to use it, then you're you're probably going to end up okay, you know, 5, 10, 15 years down the road if the market's a little bit different, you know, than when you, than when you bought it uh, because of everything else that you're going to get out of it from the enjoyment aspect of it. Great advice. Stick to your guns and, uh, and work with somebody who can understand what your goals are, like you said, Clint, but also can articulate those components of value in that piece of property, whether you're an investor, recreational buyer, no matter what, I think we covered it all. Jason, if folks want to check out National Land and look for an advisor, how many states are we in now? So we are, we've got offices in 37 states around the country. We've got relationships in 47 states and and actually now we just had <laughs> including Hawaii we just had somebody come through our network needing uh somebody in Hawaii to help them out we and we had somebody over there to to uh to be able to facilitate that so check out nationalland.com we've got a wealth of information there from naturally properties that we've got available for sale you can come in and and do your own research on what's my land worth uh with the data that we have available there we've got right now we have uh trends up for for ag land in every state that we've got that we do business in. So you can, you can check that out uh, with more details coming down the road. Uh, disclaimer with all that is that, that when you really start drilling down, the website's meant to be used to be able to give you an idea of what's out there, you know, what, you, what the trends are, what's been selling and that sort of thing. If you are trying to figure out what your property is worth, you need to be talking to one of our professionals. If you're looking at buying a property, you want to have an understanding of what it's truly worth, you need to be talking to one of our professionals because they're going to be able to help answer those questions that you just can't get by just looking at numbers on a website when it's all said and done. Clint, I, I like what Jason was saying about knowing when you found the right piece. I mean, my primary home story is very similar. We knew what we had when we found it and we just paid full price for it. We didn't, we didn't negotiate because we were happy with getting to live there. It wasn't a, uh, purely a financial decision. It was in a good school district, good neighborhood, good location. It just wasn't purely a financial decision. And, you know, I think back to land that I've sold this year, it, some of the places that there's just a no brainer, you know, it wasn't that uh, they were priced accurately, had everything that they wanted, buy it. 
You know, when was the last time you bought a piece of land? Last week. Was this a retail purchase? Yeah. It wasn't some cutthroat deal that I came across. It was something that was close to home that, you know, that I saw use and utility for with my family, but also a, a solid long-term timber investment too. You know, I borrowed money, bought it conventionally. It's going to be a long-term timber and recreational investment for, for me and my family. It's a great Zillers market, but I, you know, I see opportunities for buyers too. Like I've said before, I think it's a lot of opportunities out there for both sides right now. And I'm both a buyer and a seller in this market, you know, for the right reasons. And last week I was a buyer. Yeah. I think it's funny too, when you talk to, you know, our, our parents' generation and people that have been, you know, in the game for a long time, they say a lot of times, you know, they'll tell you the story about the piece of land they didn't buy because they thought it was too expensive. And now they just, they just laugh at that, you know, because of where, what it would sell for today. And it's not to say that every piece would be like that, but if you're looking at it long-term, and you're buying something that's got those things that you're looking for, it's, it's pretty hard to lose, I would say. Yeah, in 17 years of doing this, I've never had a client or a customer lose money on anything they bought. You know, the only rare exception you ever really hear of in our part of the world is just if somebody goes in and over-improves something. Mm-hmm. And then they just have, you know, a lot of trouble trying to recover that. But if it's a general land investment and they, and they treat it right and are mindful about what they do improvement-wise, uh, I've never seen anybody lose money in land. Well, folks, this week's What's My Land Worth segment was brought to you by Southern Yankees. Right now for sale, Southern Yankees has around 60 does and bucks that are mule-deer hybrids. Most are 50% mule-deer genetics. The 75% and greater muley genetics look and hop as mule-deer do. These animals are not being sold as game animals. A high-fence enclosure is required for ownership. They are produced by world-class mule-deer sires. Southern Yankees Deer Farm, 256-990-3838. Any and all state laws will be followed prior to commencement of any final proposal to sell or the actual sale of these animals. This is void where prohibited by law. Well, Clint, we alluded to it a little bit earlier. We're wrapping up the rut in Alabama. Mississippi's got a couple more weeks. Florida's got a few more weeks. And we see a lot of deer, a lot of bucks on the move, out looking for does, trying to find those receptive does. You experienced that or your your nephew, I guess, experienced that at your place. And it really begs the question of why in the South, for instance, we just don't see people using deer decoys very much. I personally have never used one. I, I wouldn't really know where to start or, or really the strategy of where to start other than just stick it out there and hope for the best. But we're going to figure that out today. To do that, we've got CJ Davis with Montana Decoy joining us. CJ, welcome to Hunting Land, man. I know that uh, decoys are popular in lots of different parts of the country. Why don't more hunters use them? You know, I would say, uh, despite the company name being Montana Decoy, I'm Southern boy myself, born and raised in South Carolina, moved around Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and back to South Carolina. So it's definitely a regional preference for some reason. But I would also say, and you know, everybody says this, doesn't matter where you hunt, but your deer are the toughest, your elk are the toughest, your turkeys are the toughest. But I do truly feel that Southern deer with our long seasons, especially with rifles being such a big part of them that they're just they've just evolved to be naturally a little more skittish we have a lot of big properties but a lot of those properties are leases and they get hunted a whole lot and the seasons are so long i think it just makes them a little extra careful but 
I also think there's just a misconception of what a decoy does and how it works. And we're always looking for that magic pill that's going to fix everything. And decoys are not a magic pill. They're just like your gut call or your rattling antlers or the tree stand you bought or whatever. It, it has situations that it works better in than others. And I think you have to look at decoys that way too. Well, I know when I turkey hunt, I would say the majority of the time it's a decoy for me isn't necessary. Just if I've got the terrain, I know the terrain, I'm able to get set up. And a lot of times I don't need them, but I've always got a decoy with me because there are just certain scenarios where that's the difference. And I know that I use one of your turkey decoys for me i used to never carry decoy because it was packability issue i didn't want to lug around a big decoy you guys make some some real packable decoys on the turkey side that has really changed the way i hunt is that a lot of it do you think with deer hunting i mean is it the packability a big problem because you're talking i mean a deer's (laughs) it's a lot bigger than a turkey i think it is i think people in the south are more prone to think about decoys in terms of full body 3d that don't fold where montana decoy obviously got started out west with an elk decoy the guy that started it's named jerry mcpherson and he's still a huge part of the company he just kept hunting elk in an open area and he just felt like he had a decoy but who's going to carry a three full body 3d elk decoy in that kind of terrain so he developed the first elk decoy and and used it successfully and it's all about portability for us you know lightweight realism and portability are the three hallmarks of our company and we could build plastic molded ones but that's just not really who we are and it's all about being able to carry it with you whether you're using it or not and we've applied that to elk antelope turkeys predator deer mule deer I mean, we build some crazy custom decoys for people. We've built everything from Cape Buffaloes to donkeys to mountain lions, but they're all governed by those three tenets of portability, realism, and lightweight. And I think that that for me, just like you're talking about, you didn't want to carry a turkey decoy because it's just a pain. I'm, I'm kind of the same way. If I can carry a couple decoys in my vest and not know they're in there until I need them, that's the ideal scenario. No doubt about it. Well, it works on turkeys. There's no doubt about it. Let's talk about how to use a deer decoy. I mean, to be confident and enough to use one, I want to get some strategies in place and understand, you know, I really want to talk about placement, where we need to set up, you know, how to set them up, whether we need to choose does, bucks, all these different kinds of things. So, so first and foremost, where do you think somebody should start when it comes to those things, whether we're talking about choosing a, a doe or a buck or where they're going to place the decoy? I mean, I guess the first thing they got to figure out is what they want to use, right? Is the, Why would you use a doe over a buck or vice versa? I'd probably use a doe, I'd probably say 70% of the time. That's If it's not the only decoy I'm using, I've certainly got one in there just because I feel like it. It's what, if I'm doing it during the rut, that's what a buck is looking for, you know, and there's a time and a place for an aggressive buck decoy, but I think you run the risk of causing problems. And it really depends on what you're after. You know, if you're after an upper end buck on a property that's well managed, or if you're just out hunting and you're going to shoot the first deer that comes by, that has to play into it. So if you're, you know, the average Southern deer hunter, I'm guessing a little bit, correct me where you think I'm wrong, but he's hunting the lease. And, you know, he's got some buddies in there with him on that lease and, you know, it gets a decent amount of hunting pressure and 
they're all trying to shoot big bucks, but they may settle for a marginal three-year-old to be happy with it, marginal being size in their opinion. But I think if you've got that doe decoy out and you're picking the less stressful time to use it from a hunter's perspective, that's going to be the rut, you know, the pre-rut to the rut when those bucks are cruising looking for does and there are some does that are coming into estrus. So, you know, and the other thing is where you're hunting. If you're hunting a super narrow travel corridor with a pinch point, and if a deer comes through it, he's going to be in range, then putting a decoy out there, to my opinion, is just a risk that's not worth taking. So you got to factor in where you're hunting, what you're hunting for, the time of year, and the exact location you're hunting. And you kind of put all those things together to come up with the highest odd scenario for you. So for me, I'm a traditional bow hunter. I love shooting recurves and longbows. So I need to have stuff really, really close. And I do mean really close because I'm not that great of a shot. So for me, coming up to a great big food plot and sticking the decoy 30 yards out in front of me, that's not going to work. I've got to find a way that I can influence those deer to move where I need them to be. And that doesn't always mean walking right up to the decoy. I can put the decoy behind me and just draw them close enough uh, to where they're in shooting range if it's an animal I want to take. Or, you know, if it's big woods and I kind of have an idea of where they're traveling, then I can use it to influence their movement, always keeping the wind as part of the plan because if they get downwind of it i guess i'm just not a disciplined enough hunter i've never found a way to keep myself and my gear completely scent free for when a buck walks up downwind of it he doesn't get somewhat squirrely about it so as far as setup goes i mean you know my experience has been primarily with turkey and ducks and think about visibility and sun hitting them and making sure they're seen so when we're trying to set this up are we just going up there and, and sticking it out there in the most visible spot or are we trying to base it on any particular scenario of the day or, or what's the best strategy do you think? I always like to have some background information about where I'm hunting and most people are going to scout before they hang a tree stand and I'm going to hunt an area before I use a decoy because I, I want to know what the deer are doing in that area, how they're using it, how they're moving through it and you know those things change. If you're hunting white oaks in October there's going to be a pile of deer in there, but then in January, there's going to be hardly any deer there unless they're just passing through. So I kind of want to know what the deer are doing in the area, how they're using the edge, the structure, whatever's there. For me, if I can predict an area where they're going to walk within 100 yards, but I can't narrow it down anymore, that's an ideal scenario for a decoy. Now, that could be a large food plot. It could be um, oak flat where there's acorns dropping. It could be some short pines that they're feeding on browse through. There's all these different scenarios that that really applies to. But the day I go in with a decoy, I'm going to decide what do I think the deer are doing. If it's really early in the season, then I'm replicating a, what you're, as a waterfowler, you'd call a confidence decoy, you know, so I'm sticking a doe out there or, or a small buck and, you know, replicating the deer are here, they're feeding, it's okay. Just trying to draw those other deer closer you run the risk of spooking does more than bucks. It seems like in my experience with decoys, because does are just, just a little more territorial. That's not to say you can't decoy them in or draw them in close enough to get a shot, but they're just a little more suspect about the situation than bucks tend to be. And I think you could apply that to the male of most any species, but uh, certainly with, with deer in the South, they're definitely the ones you have to fool. And if you're on a small enough food plot that you can shoot the whole thing and that's what draw that's what's drawing the deer there, then you know, using a decoy, you may have that one rogue buck that came in from a way you weren't expecting, he gets downwind of your decoy. 
and it can mess it up. So if you know where they're going again, sometimes it's best to leave the decoy in your pack. And that's the beauty of ours too. They're so, even the deer and the elk fold up small enough, you can put them in your day pack and you don't have to pull them out unless you want to. It's not like you've hauled this thing in there and now you got to figure out what you're going to do with it if you don't use it. So factoring all that stuff in, let's say I'm hunting a big white oak flat in early season. The rut hasn't really started, but there's so many oak trees dropping. It's a boomer year for acorns. And, you know, those deer are filtering through there. What's going to make them come to the spot that I'm in, especially if you factor in a guy with a bow in his hand versus a rifle? I just want to draw them over. They're, they're naturally sociable. I'm going to give up my downwind side. So I'm going to put that decoy behind me. And I'm hoping that as a deer move through out in front of me, upwind of me, they'll see my decoy and they'll drift closer trying to determine what is it, what's it feeding on, you know, where does it fit in the pecking order, is it a new deer, all these kind of things that we love to put human thoughts in, in deer's minds for them. But I do believe all those things are happening, if, if nothing else, on a subconscious level to them. So. My goal is not to shoot the deer when it walks up and puts its nose on the decoy. My goal is to shoot the deer when it gets in range and I get a good shot. So I'm using that decoy to influence that deer's movement through this large space. That's and right. that's my favorite way to use them. Yeah, speaking of that, how close have you seen them get before they really get spooky about it? Oh, we've got them where they walk right up to them, touch noses with them, try to mount a 2D decoy. We've got some footage of a mule deer trying to mount one. It's pretty crazy. And it just, the deeper they get into the rut, the more they lose their mind. Anybody that's deer hunted will tell you that. And it certainly applies to decoys as well. I remember here in South Carolina years ago, I had a doe decoy out just in front of my stand on this lane through some pines. And this two, he might've been a three-year-old buck popped out. And you could just tell by the body language when he saw the decoy, he just like bristled up a little bit, walked up to a tree, made a scrape looked at a little bit more and kind of sauntered up there. And when he got behind it to him, the deer just disappeared. He's coming behind it and try to see if she'll stand or smell her or whatever. He hops off. And when he hops off, he's back broad. She's back broadside to him. So he comes back up. Well, he does that two or three times before he finally, it's just something's weird and he walks off. So it really depends on the setup. I think the conditions of the day, if it's a really dry day, you're going to get away with more scent. If you've taken precautions, if you've, put it in an ozone bag, if you've sprayed it down, if you've not touched it with bare skin, all these things give you more of a margin for error. But we've seen them come right up to them. We've seen them come up to 15 yards, 30 yards, or that one big doe that hangs up at 90 yards and just doesn't like the decoy. It happens. CJ, I, I want to take you back to what you're talking about with regards to these does being territorial. You were talking about this early season strategy and having hunted Clint's place, I think that worked like a charm. Some of the big blocks of hardwoods he's got there, but thinking a little bit later into the year now, we're maybe in a pre-rut situation where we've got bucks out cruising, they're scent checking fields and visually checking fields. The good part about having a decoy is you could have a visual representation of that doe. Hopefully she's a, a receptive doe that gives that buck the confidence to come on out into the open area give you a shot opportunity the risk i see is that if you know you're hunting a food source let's say and you've got your 2d decoy out there well maybe there were some does that are receptive that were already going to come into that field real live bait you know coming in do you see a risk there or maybe you're going to end up scaring off the real thing or is there a way that you can use a decoy to your advantage in that scenario i think for me I want the buck to come in and I don't want the does to be there. 
So if, if the does come in early and they shy away from the decoy, that's fine. You know, most of the times when you're hunting a food plot, you past history, that food plot's been there for a few years. You've hunted it before. Your buddies have hunted it. You kind of know where the deer are going to come from. There's always that outlier that pops up somewhere at times, but you kind of know where they're going to come from. So again, if you put the decoy between you and the deer, you do run the risk if they're not comfortable with it coming all the way in. But if you put it behind you and they come out in the field and they're on the other side of it out of range, it's you got a really good chance of them drifting closer to look at it. But again, if you give me my ideal scenario, it's no does in the field. I've got the only doe out there. I don't need all these other eyes watching me and all these other noses being on the alert. I'd rather have the buck come out by himself. So if I can, if I spook the does before the buck gets there, that doesn't phase me at all. And I don't think deer are like ducks to where the bigger the spread, the better the odds. I do put multiple decoys out and I love putting, when you feel like you're in the peak of the rut, taking our dreamy doe and you can put it in a bedded pose and having a a buck standing above it like you sequestered he's guarding her he's actively breeding her i think that's just the perfect scenario for another buck to come in i don't think it's like ducks versus deer i don't think they decoy the same way yeah i'm listening to what you're saying i'm I'm always i'm always relating things back to turkey hunting because i've i've got the most experience with decoys there and a lot of times in the turkey hunt scenario, if I get hens that come in, I'm actually physically scaring them off if I can, you know, if I'm working a bird, <laughs> trying to get yeah. them to, to move on and, and go a different direction. So hopefully they don't carry my gobbler off with them. And I could see the same thing. I mean, we've all seen that scenario play out where you've got a, maybe a hot doe or she's not quite hot yet. And that buck's pushing her around and he actually ends up running into a field and running out before you can get an opportunity. She drags him off out of your shot opportunity. That's interesting. And I, I like that, that strategy. You, you were saying you carry multiple decoys and also these decoys being 2D. Do you think it's a problem if you set this decoy up and the deer is approaching from a direction where they can't see that decoy? Uh, is that making sense? What I'm trying to say, do you think you need to set up the deer facing in multiple directions, two deer facing multiple directions to pick up all those deer's eyes? Talk me through a little bit of using 2D and some of the things you think of when you're setting that decoy up. I'm always thinking, trying to determine where the deer are coming from so they'll see the decoy because the purpose of a decoy is to be seen. And you don't want the deer to round the tree and there's a decoy in 15 feet of it. I don't think that's good because deer don't typically stand still long. So for a deer to get that close to another deer and not know it's there that would be odd. So you're always trying to replicate a natural scenario. So I want those deer to see my decoy. They're far away. I got to have them see the decoy to draw them close. But also what you're alluding to, I don't want them to suddenly stumble upon it because it came into view. And there is a risk. They come up at the exact worst angle. You know, I think that would be downwind because I don't want them to smell me. I feel like that caused more lasting damage than them seeing or spooking off of a sound or something. They're not quite sure what it is. But I try to accommodate that. And in the woods, I'll put a big oak tree behind it or something where for them to to come up to it without seeing it, it'd be kind of hard because that tree would block it until they get beside it. Again, if they're beside it at 10 yards, it's bad. But if they're beside it at 40 yards, that's a different scenario. So you just try to think through your setup, keeping in mind the wind all the time. But it is a trade-off a little bit. I mean, the ideal scenario would be a full-mounted full body mount, taxidermy mount of a doe that you walk in and set down. But the trade-off to that is it would be uber expensive and it would be very difficult to tote around. So, you know, you're trading a little bit 
for the 3D side to get the portability and ease of use. Yeah. And again, it's like your grunt call and your rattle bag. We always want these things that work every time. Do you guys ever use any estrus or anything like that in conjunction with the decoy? We do. We always advise people, if you're going to do that, try not to put it on the decoy because once you store that decoy for the off season, it's just going to, it's going to turn something awful next time you pull it out. So we're always advising to put it on a branch or on the ground below it. And for some of our decoys, the newer whitetails that we're coming out with, they have this teaser tail, we call it, that you can replace it. It's held on by magnets. So you can put your scent on that and you keep the majority of it off the decoy. And also, if you're going to use that decoy next year in the early season, you don't want it smelling like an estrus doe. That would be odd. Definitely use scents with it. Use calls with it a lot. I love to call deer, but every deer I grunt at doesn't come running up to me. And every deer I rattle at doesn't come running up to me. It's all, uh, you're playing the odds constantly. And going back to what I said earlier, if you're hunting a pinch point and you know the deer, if they come through there, they're going to be where you can kill them then I wouldn't call, I wouldn't rattle, I wouldn't put out estrus, I wouldn't use a decoy. But I don't find very many of those fail-safe places, so I'm sitting in other areas that I need a deer to come closer or come a certain way, and that's where all those other things come into play to me. Thinking about setup, we've talked a little bit about pre-rut, rut, some of those opportunities. Like I said earlier, a lot of guys in the South, for whatever reason, they just don't use deer decoys very much. I think the only time I even think about it is around the rut, but you guys sell decoys and have people use them for all different kinds of animals, all different parts of the country. Is the rut, the time you alluded to the early season being an opportunity? I mean, can you use a deer decoy with a strategy in mind, basically every phase of the season? Talk me through maybe some of those other periods and what kind of decoy you'd want to use and what really the strategy is there. I can certainly do that. The sweet spot's always the pre-rut and the rut because, you know, that's when the majority of the big bucks are up on their feet. That's when the majority of them get killed when you look at the statistics. But you can definitely use it, especially for a bow hunter, because we're always trying to get deer closer. So using it in the feeding area as a confidence decoy, whether that's a large food plot or whether that's an oak flat. You know, if your deer are coming out right at the cusp of legal shooting time and, you know, you want to get them instead of feeding around and then drifting by you, you want to get them over closer. I think that's an ideal setup for a decoy, too, because it just gives them the confidence that there's a deer out here already. It's over there feeding. Their social animals are going to go that way, hopefully faster than they would have before and give you time to make a shot. And then that applies in the late season, too, where you guys hunt. Your season kind of ends with the rut, but a lot of places it doesn't. So you're you still got a buck tag in your pocket. And the big thing you're looking for is where are the deer feeding? Cause that's where I can find them. Those bucks are trying to bulk up again. Those have to feed. So you find those feeding areas and it becomes again, a confidence decoy, just like it did earlier in the season. So I think you've got confidence decoys. I think you've got the pre-rut decoy where they're sorting each other out. And that's where a buck decoy comes into play. And then you've got the actual breeding span of time, you know, and that's where the doe or the doe and a buck, comes into play and then you always have a little secondary rut sometimes you see it in a big way sometimes you don't 28 30 days after what you think the peak is so i've never been one to break down the rut by 16 different phases i feel like there's ramping up to it there's active breeding there's a bulk of the does that are in estrus then it winds down and then those does that didn't get bred either for whatever reason or age come back in again and it has a little repeat to it so I think it's basically from a deer standpoint, it's just a, a social thing to get them closer. 
It could be because they're feeding somewhere. It could be because they're traveling through an area that's really big and you're just drifting them closer. You mentioned the confidence decoy. And of course, you know, we're, we're playing on the social aspects, the confidence, or we're trying to play into mating behaviors and that kind of thing. And you were talking about that doe, maybe setting up that doe that had been with the buck behind it, kind of like he's, he's tending her, you know, he's got her sequestered out there. To me, I'm thinking that's really going to be happening in the peak rut. Talk to me about the mm-hmm. different poses that you guys have and which, which one you'd choose. If you were looking for, say, a confidence decoy, or are you looking for head up, head down feeding? I mean, take me through what you're thinking about when it comes to these poses for these deer decoys. Man, back when we all used to be able to work shows before COVID-19, that's probably the number one question I get when somebody's looking for a deer decoy is, why do you make so many? I just want one. Mm-hmm. But we like to think that our decoys are purpose built. So we have the freshman buck. He's basically a two-year-old body and a two-year-old rack, but he's in a really aggressive pose. His forehead is forward. His ears are laid back. He's doing, you know, that's the small kid on the playground acting like the bully on the playground. It just doesn't work. So it's built to cause a reaction from another buck to come over to engage with that deer. And then we've got Estrus Betty, which is a doe that's in a peeing pose. And every time it gets close to the rut or during the rut, if you have a doe that pees and a buck that sees it, he has to come over there. He has to scent check her. So they're kind of purpose built for those scenarios. So if you're a guy to show or somebody asking me what decoy do I need, my first question is where are you hunting and when are you hunting and what are your deer doing during that phase? If you only plan on using it during the rut, then Estrus Betty and the freshman buck would be one of the two, I would tell you. But if you want a decoy that, okay, I'm hunting early season on food sources, what would I do there? That new one that we've got coming out, we're calling her Trixie, and she's got the teaser tail. That's a hard one to beat. The dreamy doe has been in our line for years. And while it's probably not, being honest, it's probably not my favorite pose, but it'd be hard for me to tell you not to trust that one because we've gotten so much anecdotal evidence from hunters across the country that have had luck with it. And its pose lends itself to doing that bedded deer pose I mentioned with the freshman buck. Of course, you can bed a doe right on the edge of your food plot. That's a very calm pose for a deer to be in. So any other deer coming in kind of calms them down. She's just over there laying down, filled up her stomachs. She's hanging out. That's a natural scenario. Putting the buck to it gives it a more ruddy flavor to it. And then if you're just, you know, I'm kind of that guy that's a minimalist. I don't really like carrying anything that I don't use every time. I always make room for a thermos of coffee, though. That's a must-have. Right. <laughs> so, you know, maybe the maybe the doe rump is what I'm going to use. And it's kind of, you're looking at a deer. Uh, the pose it replicates is you're looking at a deer from the rear. That's what you see is the tail and a little bit of the head. But it folds up so small, you could literally shove it probably in the cargo pocket of your pants. So it takes up zero space. It adds hardly any weight to the scenario. And you can run it with one pole instead of two to make it really light. If you're going to buy, like, I want to buy one decoy set and call it good, where you could buy the Dream Team. That's a whitetail buck. It's not the freshman, but it's the a whitetail buck and the dreamy doe. And then we also have one that Ralph and Vicky Sansarulu worked on with us called the Archer's Choice Plot Pack. And it's a one decoy that can be either a buck or a doe with removable antlers. And then it's a, and that's a facing decoy, slightly quartered too. And then there's a uh, feeding doe that has a head down that mounts on a pole. 
and the wind will give it a little bit of motion. Uh, it has some uh, bungee cords that hold it in place so it doesn't spin around, but it will give it some motion and it has a teaser tail. So it's almost like we make too many decoys for me to tell you which one's perfect. And, you know, maybe the capitalist critique of me there is I just want to make a bunch so people have to buy a bunch. But in reality, we just like to think ours are purpose built and you find the one that best replicates the scenario you're going after. And if uh, a hunter goes out and has a great experience in the peak of the rut with a freshman buck decoy, then maybe the next season they'll think about, I'm going to do something different in the early season and think about a different decoy from us. You don't use the same scent in the early season you would in the rut and you don't grunt the same way. It's kind of the same with decoys. If you take one pose and expect it to work the same all year round, you know, I think you're asking a lot of it. CJ, you said something about motion and, and I want to take you back to that. How important is that? You know I mean? You're talking about a 2d, a 2d image. So we're giving up 3d so that we get packability. Now we've got a fake deer out there and we're trying to build confidence with these animals that they're, believe in what they're seeing is there anything we can do with motion or do you find it's is it important it's not important where does motion come in 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 a deer decoy strategy i think motion can be a nice plus i think deer operate a lot more subtle cues in body language and things we may or may not even recognize at times And and the more time you spend watching them the more you pick up on those small things if you get angry it's pretty obvious when you're angry, your body posture completely changes. You start talking louder, your hands are moving around, your face is getting red. Where a deer, you know, the hair may stand up. And if a deer is is submissive to another deer, they may lower their head, tuck their tail a little bit. So the teaser tail I mentioned, you know, in in a light breeze, it gives a little touch of motion to it. I like for decoys sometimes to be looking at the approaching animal, because I think that's natural when another deer walks up to Uh, the first deer they always tend to look at each other but for me the one thing that really separates us is that all of our decoys are built off of a photograph of an actual wild animal it doesn't matter if it's a turkey an elk or a whitetail it's a photograph of that animal doing what you're trying to replicate so if you have a feeding pose or if you have a peeing pose or an aggressive buck pose that was actually a photograph of a deer doing that. So it's not a mold that we painted or anything like that. It's really a a keynote for us is just that it's built off of an actual wild animal's picture doing those things. And I don't know how you can get any more real than that. We do have to tweak them a little bit to get the leg poles to function properly and stuff like that. But still looking at an actual photograph of a wild animal. Yeah. And I, I think that I've noticed that as well, just on the, on the Turkey side of things is like you said, it's just, it's just a little bit of, of realism can make it, can go a long way. Just, just the fact that the Turkey decoy will twist just ever so slightly, you know, on the post. I think that that's really all they need because they've most likely not ever seen a decoy before. And that's so interesting to think there's this whole aspect of killing a whitetail or any other animal for that matter, that really just kind of goes overlooked by a lot of, by a lot of hunters, myself included. I'm excited. I'm going to give it a shot. We got a little bit of this season left and I've definitely got some areas picked out on my place that I think this will work really well for where I've witnessed deer that are, they kind of just come through, you know, they're just kind of coming through you know, they're kind of like senderos almost. They, they come through, they look, nothing there, and then they're moving on, especially bucks cruising pre-rut. So I, I'm looking forward to trying this. But if folks want to take a look at 
maybe some strategy, some of these poses that you're talking about and pick out how they want to do it based on the time of year or the area they're hunting. Where do you recommend they go online to learn more about decoy and deer specifically? I would love for them to come to our website, montanadecoy.com and spend some time checking out our blogs. We got a lot of great content in there. For a number of years, we produced these things called decoy guides and you can still download them from the website that really kind of get into scenarios of when to use what and successes we've seen. And plus you can just look at, you know, the decoys and videos of how they fold and stuff like that. You can also check us out on YouTube and, uh, you know, we always love for people to follow us on Facebook or Instagram too. We share a lot of ideas and new products and just cool stuff on there too. Well, CJ, I know we certainly appreciate you joining us and sharing a little bit of your experience. I can't wait to get out and deploy some of these tactics and, Whenever we get into the heart of turkey season, we're going to give you a call again, and maybe we can talk decoy and turkeys, and heck, maybe Clint will go out west, and we need to know something about an elk or a pronghorn here pretty <laughs> soon, too. But, uh, man, thanks for joining us. It was a pleasure. I appreciate you guys making time for me. Enjoy the rest of your season. Clint, I wonder if they make a deer decoy with a an orange hat on it. That's the only thing I'm thinking. Like, <laughs> Folks, if you're putting out a deer decoy, please make sure you are wearing your hunter orange, regardless of uh, whether, yeah. whether or not it is uh, a required in your state or not. I'm really excited. I think this would work like a charm on a lot of these, a lot of food plots in a lot of these lanes and roads and things that we see bucks cruising and checking. Clint, what was your big takeaway from today? What I heard was that it's more about realistic poses and, and looks of the decoy more than it's about motion and things like that that my mind typically falls back to with my experience with bird-based decoys. What I really see this helping is those moments when you need a few more seconds to seal the deal on a good buck or you've got a young hunter with you and the buck's just not cooperating, not stepping out into the shooting lane or the field like you need them to. You know, this could really help get that job done. Yeah, I was really surprised to hear him say, you know, that he liked to see those does move on. You know, it makes sense if you think about it from a like a turkey perspective. I don't want I don't want any hens anywhere near me when I'm <laughs> when I when a turkey's gobbling. I want them all gone. They can go to the other property. But I wouldn't have thought that way, but that's definitely an interesting strategy. And like you said, I think my big takeaway was the poses the the body language and making sure you match the body language of the decoy up to the to the time of year and you're painting a picture for that deer of something that's happening and you got to make sure that the body language of that deer is, is applicable to the to the time of year you're not going to want to put a you know real aggressive buck in there in the middle of the early season because that's just not something right. that they're doing so just being able to understand those things I think it'd be awesome, man, to just feel like you got out there and this made the difference. And I mean, how many times have you got a game camera photo with a, a mature buck 30 minutes after last light? And you know that that deer was probably within sight of that field, probably just bedded down just inside the woods, waiting for dark to come on out. And if you had this visual out there to give him just enough confidence to maybe get out there at last light, it's definitely a strategy I'm going to employ specifically around pre-rut and rut, but may, you know, it may see some opportunities for it in the early season too, especially with trying to get close and trying to get some of these closer shots. But you know, folks, uh, that is going to wrap it up for this week. I hope you enjoyed this little intro to decoy and deer and it helped you maybe 
stoked your fire for getting out there and enjoying the outdoors. We want to make it easy for you to get these shows each week and and learn what we're learning and, and share along the way. So here's a handy option for you to get the podcast emailed to you each week. Just text the word hunting to 773-770-4377. Again, just text the word hunting to 773-770-4377. You can join our email list. And as always, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on all major podcatchers. Really helps keep the show going and we'd love to hear from you. So folks, y'all stay safe out there and hope your season wraps up successfully and safely. We will talk to you next week. This week's show has been brought to you by Joe Baya and Clint Flowers, members of the top producing team at National Land Realty, the fastest growing and most innovative land brokerage in the nation. Bottom line, we know land and now is a great time to buy or sell. Want to know why? Shoot us an email at pros at landhunting.com or call us at 855-NLR-LAND. And also brought to you by Southern Yankees. Right now for sale, Southern Yankees has around 60 does and bucks that are mule deer hybrids. They are produced by world-class mule deer sires. Southern Yankees Deer Farm, 256-990-3838. Any and all state laws will be followed prior to commencement of any final proposal to sell or the actual sale of these animals. This is void where prohibited by law. And also, SunSouth. From outdoor equipment, parts, service, accessories, SunSouth has you covered. Own the best for less. Visit SunSouth or SunSouth.com for quality John Deere equipment. SunSouth, for those that do and also Bucks Island Marine. They have new pontoon boats, bass boats, bow riders, and aluminum boats for sale. They provide boat service on all kinds of boats, even if they weren't purchased from Bucks. You can visit them at 4500 Highway 77 in Southside, Alabama, or give them a call at 256-442-2588. And also brought to you by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. Great Days Outdoors Magazine guides you on hunting and fishing south of the Mason-Dixon. Become a better southern hunter and angler and pick up your copy today wherever fine magazines are sold or save online at greatdaysoutdoors.com.